So when I first started practicing meditation, it was in the early 80s in England, in London. And at the time, it was pretty obscure. I don't know how many other people were meditating back then here, probably some of you. Um, but certainly in England, I don't know about California, but England it was considered pretty weird. <laughs> My family thought it was a cult and uh, they thought I joined the Moonies. <laughs> and uh, it was just, it was just, you know, it was unusual. And uh, since I'd already been a punk rocker with a white mohawk, going from that to Buddhism to me was like, pff, you know, it was kind of vanilla really. <laughs> Didn't seem obscure at all. Um, but uh, actually my parents preferred me as a punk rocker than a Buddhist because it was <laughs> less intimidating and more known than, than, than this weird, you know, meditation stuff. Anyhow, um, so fast forward 30 years and um, it's not weird at all. In fact, um, in, my, in my own family, meditation status went up hu actually hu tenfold when um, my mother's a librarian and uh, one day one of Jack Cornfield's books showed up in the, in the, the county library uh, in, in, um, in Hampshire. And uh, prior to that time, Buddhism in the family was not, you know, highly thought of. And then suddenly it was, well, my son studies with Jack Cornfield. <laughs> training with Jack Cornfield. <coughs> and then suddenly it was really cool to be meditating Spirit Rock and teaching here. And so... But now, it's, it's as I said earlier, it's become very, um, I'm happy to say, you know, it's being taught in schools and prisons and juvenile halls and in Washington and where they need it most and, um, you know, hospitals and stress and pain clinics and an amazing amount of research that's been done. It's, it's I think, one of the most researched things in psychology and neuroscience, uh, some amazing things being discovered about the brain and its capacity to grow and to learn and to uh, uh, change what were considered really entrenched habits and behaviors. And I've been recently uh, going down to Google. They have a program called Search Inside Yourself as opposed to Search on the web, a very witty little title, and there's a book coming out called Search Inside Yourself by the, the founder of the program, one of the founders of the program's Meng, and uh, it's, a, it's a program based in mindfulness, and mindfulness and integrating mindfulness and emotional intelligence uh, for people working there and, and now being taken outside of Google to different companies. Um, so, and it's a sign of the times that it's become, you know, that that's, that it's, you know, the Wisdom 2.0 conference that I'm sure Jack's spoken of and I spoke of some earlier, um, where there's a, just a huge interface and exploration with mindfulness practice and the workplace and uh, technology. And, um, so, 
so and of course whenever something becomes that popular and has a exponential growth rate like that then there's always an issue of quality control just like there is in the yoga movement where there's now 20 some million practitioners and what's taught as yoga it looks very different than what you might learn in ashram in India and the same with mindfulness that what's taught in a monastery in Burma might look very different than what's being taught um, on a webinar uh, somewhere <laughs> by somebody. <laughs> so, um, you know, and it, of course it takes all flavors and, and as the Dharma takes root in America, which it is, uh, in many wonderful, interesting ways, as as the Buddhist teaching goes to any country and any culture, it it changes, it 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 morphs and it adapts to the needs of the culture, and so uh, this culture being very uh, uh, stressed um, and stress being one of the foremost you know diseases you could say, then mindfulness is really applying itself to meet that need of of, of of stress and the ailments and conditions that come out of the way we live and the way we work and the way we uh, drive ourselves and um, so so I wanted to say all that as as a background to some of the things I want to talk about tonight which is mentioning some of the things about mindfulness practice that don't get mentioned so often at least not in this, these contexts, anyway. So, mostly when... Okay, I'm I'll do a survey. When, when you hear the word mindfulness, what does that, uh, th- that mean to you? You, you shout out in a word or two. What does mindfulness mean to you? Keep it down to compassion. Awareness. Awareness. Clarity, paying attention. Spaciousness, being present. Okay, yeah. So that's a good range of different facets or qualities or aspects of mindfulness. So what I want to do this evening is speak a little to the context of mindfulness in the Buddhist in in the Buddhist tradition, particularly from its main origin in this practice, which is from a particular sutta or teaching called the Satipatthana Sutta, which many of you are no doubt familiar with, which is one of the main passages that that we draw a lot of this practice of mindfulness and vipassana. And it often helps to go back to the original text and the some of the languaging The language of the Buddhist teaching was written down in Pali, which was a language that was designed specifically to um, communicate the Buddhist teaching. So, and as you can imagine, that language is very specific to some of the key principles. And one of the reasons why Buddhists often quote these funny Pali words that you don't might not know, might not make any sense, is because they they sp- they point to a a word that has no direct translation in English. So when I said earlier that the um, 
the, the sound, that the noise, the reverb was dukkha. Dukkha is a, one of those words that that has many, many different uh, translations and meanings, which basically means uh, unsatisfactory or painful or difficult to bear, suffering. So mindfulness is one of those words, and um, what's the, the word that it arises from uh, is a Pali word called sati, S-A-T-I, which literally has the, the root of it has it means uh, memory to remember, to recollect, to recollect the moment. So quite different than what we imagine that word to mean, which we normally translated as attention. So, and the reason I want to talk about this teaching tonight, not to be uh, pedantic about translations, because that's not that interesting, but to understand the context and why this was taught in the first place. Why the Buddha said, be mindful. Why cultivate mindful awareness? Why do anything in practice? Why meditate? So the Buddha was interested in a process, in the process of shifting from uh, shifting from living in a way that causes difficulty and stress and unhappiness and dissatisfaction and pain and all kinds of difficult things that we, places, states we get into. Shifting from that way of being to living in a way that's, that's more skillful, more awake, more kind, more compassionate, developing wholesome, skillful, beautiful qualities of mind and heart. So he was interested in, in, in human nature and the process of living and how to, how to steer the ship from, wha- from a direction that is problematic to one that is life-enhancing and uh, joyful and peaceful and happy. So, uh, the, so mindfulness was taught in service of that path. It's a path of awakening, a path of shifting from distress and anguish to happiness and well-being, to clarity and understanding. So sometimes I think the way mindfulness is being taught is it's, a, it's an end in itself. To be mindful, to be awake, to be attentive, to be at- pay attention as an end in itself. But it's not an end in itself, it's a means to support our own awakening and liberation. So it has, it's very, it's very simple in its practice, which is why it's so accessible and so immediate and direct, and it leads to profound states of heart and mind, which is the good news. So we apply, so what, what, what's ordinarily considered mindfulness, which the, there's a word for attention in, um, in Pali called manasakara. You don't have to remember these Pali words, by the way. 
but they're useful if you want to study them because they, 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 they bring a lot of meaning to bear on, on why they're used. But attention, when we pay attention from a... The, the Buddha was really a, a very astute psychologist of the mind and was able to really penetrate with a lot of clarity the workings of the mind that, that, that a lot of neurosciences now... Um, discovering the, the, the relevance of that perception. Um, so, he, so attention, which often gets misconstrued as mindfulness, is the very initial part of when we pay attention to something. So when you hear the sound of the bell, the first thing that arises, maybe not the first thing, but is this quality of manasaka where we, we immediately grasp, there's, there's, this, there's a sound, there's a, there's a vibration, there's and then all kinds of other processes come in, like perception, association, memory, and, and then our preferences and likes and all kinds of other things around that experience. Mindfulness, uh, you could say, is a, is a sustained awareness or attention to an object. So we're taking that very rudimentary, rudimentary quality of attention and developing it and, 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 and fleshing it out and, and, and giving it a lot more dimension a lot more uh, context. So, so the first thing that we do when we practice is we is we remember, we self-remember, we self-recollect, and what we what we're Remembering is the present moment. Because mostly what we forget is what's here, which is sort of ironic. We think about remembering as remembering something from the past. I love this idea of various poets and different traditions talk about the, the past is behind us, that the future is behind us and the past is in front of us. So we, but we're recollecting the present moment because we're so rarely there, as you probably noticed in the last 40 minutes of sitting. So I noticed this when I was thinking about this talk today and I was working on my computer, and I was noticing the ongoing impulse to check any other number of pages that were open on my computer, like Safari, you know, <laughs> Facebook, my email, you know, all just, just different ways I didn't want to just stay with the talk because the mind likes to flit around anywhere but here, right? So that's why we're also ADD on the computer, because anything but just working on whatever I'm working on here. So, and mindfulness is that faculty that, that sees what's happening, sees the bigger picture, and actually helps us develop a lot of impulse control. Sees remembers the folly of trying to work on something while reading emails at the same time doesn't create quality work and slows the whole thing down, right? And makes you feel disintegrated. So I was sitting there and noticing that impulse. Oh, I'm sure there's a really fun email just come in just behind this page. I know it's just (laughs) about to make my day. (coughs) Not. 
<laughs> but we like to think so. You know, oh, just check the New York Times. I'm sure there's some great new headline just happening about somewhere, something somewhere. And then the remembering, oh, that's, that's actually not what I'm doing. It's not actually helpful, not supportive. So we let go. But we see that in meditation, the many, many ways, the slipstreams that we go down, the avenues, the tunnels that take us away from remembering this moment. It seems so hard for us to dwell in this moment because the brain is so active in processing and analyzing, anticipating and planning and all the various things that it does so well. So I, I, I often read this poem, part of a poem by Billy Collins, where he writes about, it's called Being in the Moment, and he says, um, I wanted nothing more than to be in the moment, but which moment? <laughs> Not this one, <laughs> or that one, or any of those that were scuttling by didn't seem perfectly right for me, and besides, I was too knotted up with questions about the past and his tall, evasive sister, the future. And so the priceless moments of the day were squandered one by one, or more likely a thousand at a time, with quandary and pointless interrogation. All I wanted to be was a pea of being inside the green pot of time, but that was not going to happen today, I had to admit to myself. So there's the, 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 the basic practice of connecting with the present, which we're all quite familiar with, the returning, 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 returning to the breath, to the simplicity of just this moment, which is delicious when we drop in there for a moment or two or ten, and then we scuttle away to somewhere, and then we come back and, and we breathe. Oh. Yes, just breathing, just spirit rock, just the light flickering, just people squeaking chairs, just this. Oh, yeah. yeah. And there's just a profound simplicity in that. What's interesting about this text, which you can uh, read online, you can read in this, copies in the, lab, in the, in the bookstore, it's called the Satipatthana Sutta. is that the, the, the teaching around mindfulness isn't just about paying attention. It also involves a contemplative quality. So part of the recollection is, in, in the context of, of, of the Buddhist path, recollecting the Buddhist teaching and, uh, about how it pertains to the moment. So in that case about the mind flitting off, it could be just simply remembering, oh yes, to follow the restless mind is, is suffering. Let it go. The practice of letting go, just that remembering, oh, it helps to let go of those extraneous thoughts. That is a recollection. We're applying a certain contemplative wisdom. So the point of the practice is to cultivate knowing and understanding and wisdom through that clear seeing.
provide that clarity to different parts of our experience, our body, our mind, our heart, our emotions, our feelings, our sensations, our pain, how we relate to others. And we learn from those experiences. But we're not just looking at the, the basic elements of experience, like the breath, but also noticing its characteristics, noticing the qualities around it, noticing how we're relating to it. Yeah, so we're, we're fleshing out the experience. For instance, how many people, are co- how many of you are controlling your breath as you, as you breathe, as you meditate, as, as you, as you, you know, or trying to control your experience? Anybody trying to control their experience? Yeah. Any success? <laughs> right. So we get to see our tendencies. How many people go d- kind of dull out in the in the meditation, zone out, right. comfortable place. People are like. Mm. <laughs> How many of you get really uh, like? Um, desirous about wanting a certain experience. You know, you had a really great meditation yesterday and you want to just be right back in that mm-mm-mm-mm, yummy zone land. Right? So we notice the wanting mind, the fixing, the, 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 the manipulating, the, oh, if I just sit right just like that, get my mala beads out. So, but that's what we're paying attention to. The, the breath is really just a wonderful backdrop for all this other stuff that we see playing itself, our tendencies, our patterns, our habits of mind. That's the wisdom factor of the practice. So, going back to what I said earlier about the understanding the process of moving from unwholesome or unskillful or painful states to wholesome, skillful, peaceful states of mind and heart. That's what we're paying attention to. Does this, does this behavior, does this action, does this thought, does this, does this relationship to my, this rejection of my pain, does this, this frustration with my, with my mind, does, does that lead to greater states of well-being or not? So we get to see, oh, in a very, a very, very microscopic way, these these habits, which can be kind of tedious to to see a, a time and again. And we think, my God, I should learn this by now. You know, I keep, I keep, you know, judging my mind for thinking. You know, I'm judging myself for ha- for having thoughts in the meditation, as if we could control our thoughts. Or, or, or hating our knee pain as if that would make it us be at peace. So this uh, student shared this story once where he um, he was teaching a retreat up the hill, and he came in late to the talk. And the, the, on a retreat, the, the the hall gets very silent. People get really quiet and. And so if you come in late, especially to a talk, and you generally you feel pretty self-conscious, and 
all that social conditioning gets triggered. I'm, uh, everybody's hating me, and I'm terrible. Why didn't I get my life together? I'm always late for things and uh, dramas, and you know, and I'm thinking everybody hates you because you're disturbing the talk. And so he was really giving himself a hard time. And I think the talk was on kindness or compassion. Here they were, give me that sting. But he stayed with it. He just stayed mindful of that pattern, which is what we get to do in, in sitting. We get we sit and we sit, we get to watch our tendencies, our habits. And over time, the, the because the nature of mindfulness is it it uh, has this capacity to disengage. M- mindfulness being a non-reactive attention, it allows us to disengage from the reactivity of the mind. So we see it. Oh. And then he just noticed he was beating himself, berating himself, and and there was space around it. He wasn't at, he wasn't beating himself up for beating himself up, which we normally do, and then just more judgments and, <coughs> and I just suddenly saw it and it loosened and it dissolved and there was just ease. It just oh yeah, came in late. I was five minutes late for the talk. Who cares? Right? So a lot of suffering gets relieved in that clarity. And so that's, that's where mindfulness is in service of insight. And that's a very small example, but we can e- extrapolate to our lives. So one of the things the Buddha said to pay attention to in your practice in the way mindfulness serves wisdom is notice how things come about, come into being, come about. Right? Normally, we're not so present, so we're just suddenly feeling pissed off, or grumpy, or jealous, or something, and we feel somewhat victimized by emotions because they just seem to pop out of nowhere. But nothing pops out of nowhere. Everything arises because it was conditioned by certain things. Thoughts, associations, memories, events, actions. So he said, pay attention. Well, how do these things arise? You want to you understand how do these things come into being? And how, more importantly, how do they pass away? How is it when you're in a state at work, when you're feeling really resentful of a colleague, or you're feeling really mad at your boss, how does that state that's really painful subside? That would be a useful thing to know. How did I, you know, think of, think of some of the, think of, what day is it today? It's Monday. Think, it must be Monday. <laughs> Monday night. <laughs> <laughs> think of the worst thing that happened today. Or the worst kind of mind state you got. Maybe you were stuck in traffic and you were late for a meeting or your kids would, 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 didn't want to get in the car to go to school or your partner said something that was really rude and so So just cast your mind back. And then notice, and then see if you can reflect on what allowed that very painful mind state to dissolve. Yeah. And it's really interesting to notice. How do these things that are so, they so grip me, they seem so real and important in the moment, yeah, ten minutes later you're eating a bagel and it's all, you know, hunky-dory. Maybe. Sometimes. Or why do you get so pissed off in the first place, or so angry or resentful? 
what was it what was the trigger maybe got an email from from a colleague or somebody at work and they hadn't appreciated the work that you did last week or something something very unusual like that at work you know <laughs> not seen for the hard work that you do and then you see what gets triggered right just a, just a one line email haven't you finished that that piece of work yet what's up I'll tell you what's up. (laughs) 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 You, it's what's up. (laughs) And so, you know, if we're present, we can see what gets triggered. Is it, is it, you know, are we feeling insulted? Are we feeling hurt? Are we feeling rejected? Is it something that, you know, somebody said to us when we were five and it's the same old story and we never get seen for the hard work that we do and yada, yada, yada. Because these are the everyday places we get we get caught. We, we, it's, it, it hurts to be in these places. <coughs> so, another, so to expand the quality, this quality of sati, of, of, of attention, knowing, uh, there's a there's a there's a another expression called sati sampajanya, which means we're not just present to the event, but we're also present of the context to the context, present to the environment in which it's happening. Sampajanya, aware of um, the the sort of the, the the overall picture. So, using that work example, um, it would be mindful of the appropriateness of the response. Do you immediately send a, you know, an email back? No, probably not. Not if it's your boss. You kind of, unless you don't like your job and you want to have a fast exit. No, you, you wait, you breathe, you talk to somebody, you write the email, stick it in the draft folder. So another important aspect of mindfulness um, in practice is the quality of non-interference, non-manipulation. So this is this is something that um, there's a place for having direct action with experience, like this lamp here that doesn't want to work very well. Um, but initially in meditation, we're practicing non-interfering which sounds very passive, and in a way it is sort of passive. It's receptive. We're just a letting be what happens in our inner experience and our outer experience, which is not a, pr- not a quality or practice that we do so well in our lives, because we're very quick to jump in and fix and control and make it better and get rid of it and to our liking, right? Anybody do that? So I had this great story of uh, a man, he's, he's uh, somewhere in, I forget where it was, Texas or somewhere, and uh, he's at work and he's just had it with, uh, he's got really frustrated with his computer, 
and I don't think he was practicing mindfulness because um, he got up and he pulled out his six shooter and he shot his computer six times. <laughs> which, and this is on the news, and the collective cheer went up around the country, you know. Finally, someone gave it to the computer. They had it coming. <laughs> Ever had that desire to just throw it out there today, throw it out the window? So this is this is this is not non-interfering awareness. This is interfering awareness. This is where we <laughs> interfere directly with our experience in a way that wasn't to his well-being because he actually got fired. Um, but it's it's the place it's the place of it's it's the it's the source of wise action. So the in in the context of the Buddhist teaching. Wise mindfulness supports wise understanding and wise action. So we're very quick to move to the action, but not so quick at getting to the, the, the wisdom prior to m- engaging in action. So that expression of, I should engage my brain before engaging my mouth. We're often so reactive, it just things come out that we then regret because we haven't practiced, we haven't cultivate this quality of non-interfering awareness that just first receives, understands, experiences before actually engaging in in words or in action. But an example of this in meditation, you know, you might be sleepy as some of you look right now, (laughs) because it's nine o'clock at night on a Monday. And, um, you know, if you're in meditation, you know, you notice that you're sleepy and then out of that, from that awareness, you, 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 make a, you make a wise decision. You know, if your head is on the floor and you know you think you're asleep, you think you're awake, it's not happening. You know, you wake up, you open your eyes, you stand up, you breathe, take some breaths, you, you, know, you invigorate the system. That's, the, you know, that's wise action in a very simple cause and effect sort of way. So someone just told me uh, about an experiment that I think is quite well known of, um, it's a psychology experiment where they put children in a room, this is a, this is a, a experiment around impulse control that really highlights something about mindfulness. So the, the children were put in a room alone and they were given a marshmallow, these are five-year-olds, they were given one marshmallow and told to sit there and not eat the marshmallow for half an hour. Which might sound a little torturous to some of you, um, and and then they were filmed. They were filmed uh, unknowings to them, and so of course some of them just you know <laughs> grabbed it, ate it. Where's the next one? But then many others took the instruction and were able to shift their attention away from the marshmallow, and they would sing nursery rhymes and count and just entertain themselves for half an hour. And so if they, w- if they didn't eat that marshmallow, they would be given two marshmallows at the end. So, and this was a very uh, pivotal study, and, and these kids were, were studied for a long time to track their relationship between impulse control and different outcomes in their lives in terms of educational success and 
all of that. And uh, and the children who had better impulse control turned out to have a lot more success in life, uh, which is not surprising. Um, but it, it it's to me it speaks to this quality of of mindfulness, of of a non-reactive attention, yeah. which quite takes a lot of mindfulness to have a marshmallow sitting on your desk for half an hour and not eat to eat it. So, an interesting the Buddha talks about that the, there is uh, right mindfulness and there's wrong mindfulness. Anybody think of what wrong mindfulness might be? In the context of in the context of what I'm teaching, which is in the context of what he was teaching, which is mindfulness in support of shifting from unskillful to skillful states of mind and behavior, what would be wrong mindfulness? What? Stuck in the past. Stuck in the past. Obsessing. Uh, Obsessing. Reacting. Reacting. A judging mind. Judging mind. What if? What ifs? These are all really good. I'm thinking about them <laughs> as I'm. The I should be more specific in the question. So, um, well, you c- you can review your own answer once I've said this. So, wrong mindfulness is when the the application of this mindful attention is in service of things that bring harm to yourself or others. So revenge would be a good one. Violence. Violence. So, for instance, the Indian Army trains its uh, uh, sharpshooters, snipers, to in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So they become better uh, shots. Uh, the the common example is a thief. A thief has a lot of um, a, a lot of attentiveness. Yeah, you know? he has to be very you know if, if burglar you know a cat burglar going to a house you know has to have a lot of you know attention and uh, a lot of mindfulness you could say. But it's in service of greed and will cause suffering and hatred and and therefore is is not onward leading towards happiness. So in, the, in that context, it doesn't, necessar- doesn't really fall in the context of wise mindfulness. So, um, and we can, you know, we can use anything in our practice in service of anything. Yeah. So we can use our meditation to, you know, for power, you know, for fame, for ego boost for, you know, all the different ways, you know, get onto the next meditation reality TV show, you know, <laughs> how to, uh, what's it called? Um, so you think you can meditate? <laughs> uh, because there is, there is now a yoga competition, a national yoga competition in America somewhere that I read about. So there will soon be a probably a 
the uh, meditation competition. You know, who can sit? Who can have the least breaths per hour? You know, <laughs> who can get the most transcendent in ten seconds? You know, we'll probably have to measure that at some point. I mean, they can measure that, but you know, to some degree. So a couple, of, a couple of the um, metaphors the Buddha gave for mindfulness point to again elucidate different aspect uh, of this quality. Um, the, the metaphor that I like, uh, two, the two of them that I like. One, one is um, the metaphor of the gatekeeper. So a gatekeeper on old castle town, right? Fortified town has one main gate entrance in and out, and they guard the gates of who enters and who lives. So partly what mindfulness does is it serves to monitor what states of mind enter and leave. Yeah. So um, in, 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 the, uh, in the phrase, probably my favorite phrase of the Buddhas, where he says, um, whatever the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. Whatever the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. So whatever we think about, whatever we practice, we become. So mindfulness in service of wisdom is saying, well, you know, do I want to practice envy every day when I'm at work or when I'm driving and well, when I'm... Do I, want, do, I want to, do I want to keep maintaining this state of comparison and feeling bad? Do I want to maintain a state of feeling deficient? You know, because if we keep thinking those thoughts, guess what happens? We feel deficient. And another metaphor he gave was the, the metaphor of the, the, um, the cow herder. So the cow herders in India, um, during the, the time of year when the crops are, are growing, they have to be super vigilant that the, that the bullocks and the cows don't stray into the rice paddies and eat all the crops. But then during the, during the fallow season, the, the, the image is the cow herder leaning up in against the back of a tree in the shade, very relaxed, very spacious, quite an open view, and just letting the, the cows wander, you know, keeping them out of harm when need be, but mostly just letting them relax. So that's how we are with our own mind. Right? Sometimes we can just let it relax. We're sitting on a beach and beautiful day and we don't have to be mindful of every wave. And out, <laughs> come in, crash it. You know, it's not the point in that Gary Larson cartoon where there's a man walking down the lane, in, up, down, up, down, breathe in, out, in, out. And no, we don't need to be that. You know, we can relax. You know, and there's times to be present and, and disciplined and times to focus and time. So, um, I just want to close with, with, with saying that um, I want to thank you for, for hanging in there with me, because this is, this is somewhat of a technical talk. And um, The place that this most applies in our day-to-day lives is in the application of mindfulness and ethics. 
that you know the Buddha laid out this 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 system of of wise living, non-harming, not taking that which hasn't been given, not using sexuality in a harmful way, not harming through your words and speech and emails, and uh, not taking intoxicants that cloud and hurt our body and mind. So. You know, if if there's a place that mindfulness most serves us is in how we a- how we move and act in the world, and how we act with consciousness, with clarity, with kindness. So, um, I was on retreat, and this woman told me this story. She used to work in a bar, and the days that she would was was really grumpy. Her practice was to be kind to whoever that came in, no matter how annoying they were. And I imagine bartending being a really challenging job when you have someone sitting at your bar for five hours, yeah. deteriorating in consciousness, yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're annoying to start with yeah. before they've had a drink. And so that was her practice, you know, to be, ki- to be non-harming, to be kind in a very difficult situation. Um, there was a story of a woman uh, I had on retreat who uh, she uh, was always really reactive to bugs and insects and would always just naturally, you know, just, you know, as we do, you know, without thinking. I was just up north somewhere this weekend and talking to somebody and they were just, you know, bug would come by and <laughs> it would be dead, <laughs> just like that. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's really painful to watch, especially for the bug. Um, so just the simple, you know, when we become mindful, we, 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 we have more sensitivity and we have this careful life. And we, we have, we are aware of the impact of just killing something that, that, that small has an impact on our mind stream. So the clearest example I have this now, close of the story is, um, a student who, uh, I worked with, uh, for some time lived on the East Coast, and who worked in the sex industry, and was a sex worker, and um, was also a mindfulness practitioner, and at some point had to come to terms with the painfulness of that work that she'd chosen. And and it was a slow transition out of that work. But what mindfulness did is it, it... because of the nature of it being an embodied practice, she began to feel how degrading and painful and dehumanizing to herself, to clients. And so over over a period of time, she extricated herself from that work. But it was really the power of mindfulness that enabled her to see the harmfulness to herself. Uh, very powerful lesson for her. So, so the good news in this practice is it's accessible, it's available, it's in our nature to be aware, it's in our nature to know, it's in our nature to, to be attentive. Right? So we're harnessing that quality in service of our well-being and the service of well-being of others. And the more we take care of ourselves and our own mind and hearts, the more we have a positive effect on the world around us. So may, you, may your mindfulness grow in heaps and bounds.
Thank you for your attention. Have a good week. Have a mindful week. Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.